intro, Joel. Let's get into it, man. I encourage you guys to open up for yourselves to Joel. This is a minor prophet book uh, in the latter half of the Old Testament. <clears throat> so wherever that's in your Bible, if you want to pull that up on your phones, please do. But I'm going to give us like a, a background a little bit. I'm going to talk a little bit about prophecy, what that even kind of means, what that should mean for us. Um, we're going to give a context of the book of Joel. One thing we say here all the time is context changes content, right? So if we don't understand what we're reading, when it was written, who it was written to, why it was written, we'll read it wrong. And that's how you have a lot of different churches that interpret things so differently because maybe we're not studying the context appropriately. So I'm going to get into this a little bit. We'll pray, we'll read, and then I'm going to break it down for you. But as Ben mentioned back, uh, I think two weeks ago when we were still studying Second Peter, he had mentioned how Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies, right? And he broke, and Alex Gilbert did this too, broke down the numbers of the likelihood of that being possible. To even do eight of them, eight of the Old Testament prophecies all in one person is some astronomically big number. And yet Jesus uh, fulfilled over 300 of them. But what Ben said when he was teaching, hopefully you were listening, um, he's kind of hard to listen to sometimes, but it's fine. He is in here, right? <laughs> yeah, he's in here. <laughs> they know exactly where you're at, too. They're always waiting for the Ben joke. <laughs> One thing he also said is he said that there's 13 Old Testament books, probably more, that still have prophecies, what? Left to be fulfilled. And he said that uh, we were going to be studying one of them, and this is it. This is it. We're getting into Joel, and Joel has unfulfilled prophecies. So uh, I encourage us to lean in because this is what's called a minor prophet book that contains these unfilled prophecies. Now, for us, why does that matter? It matters because if Jesus already fulfilled over 300 of them, we should pay attention to the ones unfulfilled because he will fulfill them. So we should be attuning ourselves to what God says will happen, and we should best be paying attention because they will come one day. Now, I want to be clear. Uh, again, this book of Joel, I'll just be frank with you, is, is uh, a little bit of a hard read, especially if you're not into the, you know, in the Bible too, too much, and that's okay. We're all in at different levels. We all understand to different levels. We're all learning and in our own uh, growth phases with the Lord and the Word. But even as I was studying these first 12 verses, which is what we're going to be in, there was moments where admittedly I was like, what in the world am I supposed to say to my family? I have no idea what this is even saying. I do now, but at first I was like, what the heck? But I want to be clear. <clears throat> we say there's prophecies and, and we get into this book, but I think there's really two types of prophecies, and I say this on the most surface level ever. There's prophecies we like to hear and prophecies we don't like to hear. I'm just going to define it that way. And, and I would think we'd be tempted, both as Christians and then specifically the unbelieving world, to read this book and be like, well, nah, not interested, don't need this, like skip next. And I'm just being real, we tend to be people, myself included, that we want things to tickle our ears. We don't want to hear the things that are quote-unquote weird. We don't want to hear the things that are hard to read or to listen to. So we love prophecy like Isaiah 9, right? For unto us a child is born, and he will be called. We have it on our walls, right? Every single year we're going to teach it, and we're going to put it up on the screens in beautiful graphics. Uh, I'm just going to be honest to you. If I just look at any part of this, uh, it has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away. I've never seen that on someone's wall. <laughs> I've never seen that in an Instagram bio. I've never seen someone posting that on Facebook like, praise the Lord. My fig trees have been stripped, guys. Hallelujah, isn't he good? <clears throat> so there's prophecy that, if we're being honest, we like to hear, 
And it's beautiful. Isaiah 9 is beautiful. It's one of the most powerful prophecies in the world. Why? It's talking about Jesus coming. And he's amazing. And yet this prophecy is also talking about Jesus coming, just in a very different way. So we need to lean in no matter what. And I think we have to be people that even if it's not Christmas quotable and on signs around our houses, it's equally the word of God. Amen? So we're going to get into it. So I want to open us with this challenge. If this, the book of Joel, is truly the word of God, then us being the type of people that just pick out what tickles our ears and avoiding what doesn't is to actually miss the fullness that God intends in his word. And we want to be people that, as Matt Von Stein said months ago, do the work, right, if you remember that. Do the work to see what God is trying to say to us, to actually walk in the fullness of the word of God because it is so worth walking in. I'm going to kick off with a Chuck Swindle quote. We're going to pray and get into some context. Chuck Swindle, if you know him, a a popular pastor and theologian, said this. Visions of the future, such as the kind we find in Joel, or even in the pages of the more well-known book of Revelation, can often seem remote from our day-to-day existence. However, their vivid pictures of destruction should serve to awaken us from our spiritual stupor. Do you ever struggle with feeling complacent? A strong dose of apocalyptic imagery, like we find in Joel, might just do the trick of opening your eyes to the necessity of faithfully following after God every moment of our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, even in these first few minutes, um, the feeling of family is so present here. I'm thankful for this family. I'm thankful for every person in every seat, every story every salvation, every testimony, every gifting that you've uh, bestowed on the different people in this room, God. You're using it all to build your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, I'm just thankful. So this morning, we ask a simple prayer. Would you open our eyes to what you would have for us in your word? Would you unveil to us something new? Would we read things that aren't very popular in our culture, but because we aren't of the culture, we will actually leave refreshed and having learned something amazing? Father, I ask for anyone in the room who this might just feel weird to. That's okay. We are weird. We love you, Jesus. We trust you. We give this to you. And to add to the weirdness, all God's people sing. Amen. Come on now. Everybody now. If you're not singing, I'll point you out. That was beautiful. Average or best, but beautiful. All right, so before we get into verses 1 through 12, again, that's what we'll be in. Um, I just want to give what I hopefully is a, a pain, like a digestible overview of the three chapters we're going to study, okay? So God is bringing a prophetic word through Joel, so the prophet Joel. He's bringing this word, and he addresses a few things, and I'll try to summarize it really quickly. He addresses an active army of locusts that had destroyed everything and how God's people were meant to respond. So that's the first part. That's, you know, we're getting to that this morning. He goes on from there into the second half of chapter 1 into chapter 2, and he brings prophecy of the Lord's return and how evil nations will be brought low. Anybody excited for that to happen one day? Ending in a common theme that even when things seem bleak, God still wins. And at the end, and kind of encompassing all of it, is a call for us to turn back to God. That's a very simple summary of these three chapters that we're going to get into. 
But the question I think we can ask ourselves this morning, and the reason that we subtitled this series, The Valley of Decision, The Valley of Decision, which is from chapter 3 directly, is that when the locusts come, which we're about to talk about, when the struggle comes, when the hardship comes, the question for us to open up today is, who are you going to trust? Who are you going to lean into? What will you decide while in the valley? And that's what a lot of this study is about, is when things are crazy, things don't make sense, things are all over the place and seem destroyed, who are we going to follow? What decision will we make while we're in the valley? So let's read. It'll be up on the screens for you, but I encourage you to be reading out of your own Bible. Verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethelah. Hear this, you elders. Listen to all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? So pause. This was interesting for me because as I was originally studying this, I was reading it as if, as if it was a prophecy that this was going to happen. It was already happening or, or, or had already happened, which is interesting. Which kind of changes how we read it. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. So even right there, this was a big deal. Like this was such a big deal in the time of Judah. This was happening in Judah, the land of Judah. That they, Joel was, well, God through Joel was saying like, hey, this is so big. Like your kids need to tell your kids who need to tell your kids. Like that's how big this is. Verse 4. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. Verse 5, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion and the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up. The olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. All right, guys, well, that's going to be it. We'll see you next week. I hope you feel uplifted by today's sermon. Now, <laughs> in all seriousness, it's cool how God works because last week, 2 Peter 3, what was most of that chapter about? Destruction, like things burning up by fire, like the coming of the Lord and the importance of us paying attention because God didn't, Jesus didn't just come once, the boy's coming back and we got to be ready, right? And there's all these parallels and metaphors that the Bible gives us that Ben talked about. Um, it's like coming back like a thief and how we ought to live and, and all these parallels and languages. And you know what's crazy is these books are written a thousand years apart. I really don't like when people are like, well, the Bible contradicts itself because then I'm just like, you haven't read it, obviously. You can read two books a thousand years apart saying the same thing. What are you talking about, ma'am? That's, that's an apologetic thing for a different day, but 
So we'll get into some context here, okay? So we just read this this kind of off-putting passage, if we're being honest, and we are going to get into it a little bit. But some context of who Joel was, who he was writing to, what he was writing, uh, all of the above. Joel was what was called a pre-exilic prophet, so pre-exile. So before Israel had been exiled, which is a very uh, big theme in the Bible throughout the Old Testament, the exile of the Israelites and what that looked like, uh, Joel was before that, meaning it hadn't happened. It was around, it's estimated that he wrote this uh, around 835 B.C. Uh, It's actually believed, I think, that only Obadiah was a prophet before Joel. Joel was one of the first, one of the first. And it was interesting to study the timing of this book as well. So just a little background, if you were looking to 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles, you can actually match up timelines to see who the king of Judah was at that time. Now, interestingly, it wasn't a king during this letter. It was a queen. The queen's name was Athalia. Anybody heard that name? I got so many scholar scholars in the room. Athalia. It was a pretty new name to me, too. So I'm studying this, this lady named Athalia, Athalia uh, and I just want to highlight this because of um, God's justice being so common throughout Scripture. Like, we read something like this, and it just seems like kind of like down and like, oh, my goodness, this is a little bit heavy. And yet, if we look deeper and deeper, God's justice is everywhere. So Athalia, however you want to pronounce that, I think it's Athalia. She was a queen who, listen, her son was the king. Her son died in battle. She overtook the throne and killed all seven heirs. And this is in Judah, God's kingdom. Killed all seven heirs of the throne so that she could have the power. While she was in power, she just jacked everything up. I mean, she was destroying and desecrating temples. She was, like, attacking people that were allies. She was doing horrible things. Like, she was uh, not good. So if you go back into Second Kings and look her up, she's one of the ones that it says, like, she did not do the will of the Lord. You know, it, like, bases the kings that way or the kings and queens. So, uh, and it's, it's actually guessed that this book was written right near the end of her reign. Meaning a locust storm came and jacked everything up right on the tail end of someone who was doing the opposite of the will of God. God's justice showing up. Now, we see that there's this queen going on and there's destruction. And again, like we talked about earlier, this queen was brought low. Uh, Jeff, I love, he's so visual. He equated it to Narnia, the white witch. You know what I'm talking about? See, now everybody's like, okay, I can get on board with that. Like, Narnia was this beautiful place, right? If you've seen the movie, like, just majestic and beautiful, and yet there was so much evil running it. Like, there was this evil presence running such a beautiful place, and Judah, part of the Israel-like kingdom, part of, like, God's plan uh, had this evil queen, and yet God brought justice, uh, same way that the white witch was brought low. Now some of you are going to go watch Narnia when you get home today. One last piece of context, so we kind of have painted the picture of what's going on in Judah at this time, like the timeline and and what's happening and who was in charge and all that good stuff. Um, But one last piece of context is the locust. So this is not a common problem for, I would guess, the vast majority, if any of us. But it was a devastating problem over history. Like, get this, in 1915, a plague of locusts covered what is modern-day Israel and Syria. The first swarms came in March, and the clouds were so thick that they would block out the sun for up to six hours at a time, devouring everything. I mean, every crop, every plant, grass, everything, just decimating everything. The female locusts, uh, I'm just giving you Wikipedia information at this point. Female locusts, they would be able to lay 100 eggs at a time, and they were able to produce, like, 24-fold in a month or something like that. I mean, just insanity. 
They could have 65,000 to 75,000 eggs in a square yard. In a few weeks, they would hatch, and the young uh, locust, which is, again, guys, oh, so interesting. It even says in these verses, verse 4, what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. That's, it's like an accurate, accurate depiction of how locusts function. So when locusts are hatched, they're like ants. They can't fly yet, and they just eat everything on the ground. And then they get big, and they can fly. They're called great locusts. And then they're covering the sun and flying and eating everything, and it's just a whole hot mess. So this was a big deal. This was a big deal. The worst ever, get this, the worst ever locust plague is called the Locust Plague of 1874. It covered 2 million square miles. 2 million square miles. It was so thick, the same thing, it would cover the sun for entire days. It caused millions of dollars of crop loss. And I can't help but wonder if Joel was telling them to pass this story on how similar it must have been to these types of things. In fact, I have a picture for you. Check this out. This is from 2020 in Kenya. So this is two, three years ago, three years ago. So it is relevant in some parts of the world. Uh, but just a quick Google picture of a locust swarm just from three years ago in Kenya where they had massive damage in Kenya. Entire crops, fields, communities were destroyed from this. So it gives you a little visual of what may have been going on uh, in Judah at this time. So... I want to preface my points in this entire study with this. And this is, this is going to be a little bit of a jump, but I'm going to get you there. God allows these things because he loves us. We're going to get there. You're going to be amen and later. God allows these types of things because he loves us. He, allowed har he allows hardships to pull us back to him. He uses hard things to remind of us, us of the only thing that matters, and that's our relationship with him. So my first point comes directly out of verse 12, the very last sentence in verse 12, which says this, surely the people's joy withered away. The implication here being obvious, that the joy of the people in Judah had been rooted in the things that were now taken away from them. So my point is this, don't overvalue what will vanish. Now it's interesting because when I was originally studying uh, kind of all the three chapters and I was thinking of them as future prophecy again, this uh, is actively happening. Th this locust storm had probably actually already happened or was still going on. And the entire first part, the entire 12 verses that we just read, is solely highlighting the devastation and loss of this in locust invasion. And the severity of it and the painful feelings that follow it and even the Lord's instructions like it makes sense for you to wail. It makes sense for you to weep. It makes sense for you to uh, put on sackcloth, which was an, uh, something they did back in the day to mourn. It makes sense for you to do that because this is horrible. Like this is bad. This is really, really bad. And the entire part of it is just this highlighting of that their food elements are gone. And this is many of their livelihoods. Like not a, people can't eat because of this. They can't make money because of this. So like think about your job. Think about your provision in your household. Just imagine it evaporates. Like our pleasures have been gone. Like there's no more wine, the grapes. I mean, I got some ladies in the room that are like, no, thank you, Lord. Don't be taking that for me. The fig trees, the fields, the ground, the grain, they're all ruined. They're dried up. How about our pleasures. It, it, I think it intentionally lists pomegranates, palms, and apple trees. Why? Those would have been delicacies at the time. And it says those are gone. They're gone. Everything they went to for fulfillment, 
everything they went to for success, everything they went to uh, to feel good about themselves, everything they had to feel comfortable, gone like that. And I believe that the Lord is pointing these things out to Judah and to us, trying to remind us that the worldly things we value get stripped away at one point or another. The worldly things that we go to and cherish and find pleasure in and find uh, satisfaction in one way or another, today, tomorrow, or at the end of your life, they get stripped away. Friends, you can make all the money in the world. It ain't coming with you. And there's no guarantee that the person you will it to is not going to blow it all in two weeks. That includes money, success, pleasures. How about this family? You name it. It's not always going to be here. So as I was prepping, much of this message is similar uh, style and verbiage, I feel, until the very last part. Like verses 1 through 11 is very similar. It's like just talking about the pain. It's talking about the struggle. It's talking about what was taken away until it gets to that very last part of verse 12. Surely the people's joy is withered away. It almost shifts to me in the language a little bit as if the Lord's highlighting it to us. I think the Lord, through Joel, is acknowledging that much of us, if not all of us, and the people of Judah, clearly, their joy was in what? Stuff. Their joy was in stuff. And as it withered away, so did what? Their joy. So let me ask us a question this morning. Does your joy tend to wither away when your stuff disappears? Like when you're feeling good in that relationship... But then it ends, are you just wrecked every single time? You're making good money, but you get fired. You feel safe with your bank account, but then that big bill comes in. Oh, man, listen, I can attest to the fact that I'm like, man, we got our savings up a little bit finally, you know what I'm saying? And then we get 17 car bills, and we only have two cars. It doesn't even make sense. And I just go, I put on my sackcloth, and I hide in my closet for two weeks. I don't have sackcloth. Maybe you're feeling great and healthy and you get that bad health diagnosis. Maybe your family life is amazing, but then one of your kids hits puberty. Anybody. (laughs) Maybe you're feeling successful and valuable, but then you have some significant failures. It could be anything, right? It could be all the things, like look at what Judah had. I mean, it just details so many things that had to do with so many intricate parts of their life. Like name the intricate parts of your life, the things that really mean a lot to you, the things you value a lot, the things that are important to you. And yet I just ask you this question, if they were gone today, would you feel as good now as you would tomorrow? Or would something significantly change? And and let me caveat that. That's not to say we don't mourn. Of course we do. But I will say this, we don't mourn like people with no hope. So whatever it may be, I'm just asking us this morning, does our joy wither away with our stuff, with our comforts, with our preferences, with our opinions? Gosh, you know how many people, if you don't agree, if you don't agree with them or they don't agree with you, you just can't be happy? It's crazy to me. And let me just challenge us, similar to the people of Judah who are going through something real. This is not to discount hardship. Hardship's very real. And I don't think God, to any extent, is discounting their hardship. I think he's simply saying, first and foremost, I'm here, I see you, but also the reason this is so painful is because you put too much stock in it. Anybody in the stock market? Anybody? So if you are, you're with me. Painful right now. And yet, I think even outside of money, how often do we put stock in things that when the stock plummets, we're a hot mess? Right? 
I think Judah was here. Judah was at this place. They were at this crossroads where they had to decide and to see and to learn and let God reveal. We're going to get to that shortly. That, hey, this does suck, if you're willing. (laughs) This is hard. This is definitely not what you would have wanted in life. And yet, do you understand? I'm still here. And maybe that stuff was never for you anyways. That can look a lot of different ways. But I want to challenge us this morning that if our joy is easily withered away, it may be misplaced joy. Maybe misplaced joy. So I believe the first thing that God is calling us to today through this prophetic word is just to take inventory this morning of where's your joy? That's a question we should ask ourselves a lot. Like, where's my joy this morning? Is my joy in the fact that I get to go to my job? Is my joy in the fact that I, I'm waking up next to my wife? Is my joy in the fact that my kids are little and adorable, which they won't always be? You know what I'm saying? I'm looking at some of y'all ugly mugs in here, okay? You used to be little and cute, all right? <laughs> Just kidding. Whatever your joy might be in on a day-by-day basis, are we taking inventory and just simply asking God and ourselves, like, what's my joy in? And should it be in that? Should it be in that? So let's keep going. If you look at kind of the chunk of this text, I'll say like verses maybe like four through, well, pretty much all of it. It's just, again, this awful depiction of the destruction that was caused. Like, and it's just weird to me because um, I'm pretty sure the people of Judah knew that everything had been destroyed. You know what I mean? Like, they're looking at their fields and like, I know. You know what I mean? Like, they're looking at their, their fig trees and their vines and like, uh, I know. You know what I mean? They're looking at their grains and their fields and the grounds and all that. And they're like, yes, thank you. I know. And then God's like, well, let me tell you. <laughs> let me just give you a prophetic word about how all your stuff's destroyed. How do you feel about that? Anybody in? Like, thanks, God, for letting us know we're aware. And yet what we see throughout this letter, I think, is God's call to lean into him as the only thing we need even when the things of this earth are gone. So my second point is this. God allows destruction to make us aware of our dependence. Now, we're going to sit on this one for a little bit. Because this is not a popular idea. And I, I, I mean both for believers but maybe specifically for non-believers. We'll get to that in a second. But I want to clarify, uh, we're making, we're saying this, make us aware of our dependence. Why are we saying it that way? We worded this very intentionally because I had the point worded differently and the pastors had our meeting on Thursday and we reworded it for some intentional reasons. God allows destruction to make us aware of our dependence. The reason we're saying it that way is because every person alive on planet earth right now is completely dependent on God, whether or not you know it, care about it, think it, or like it. You are fully dependent on God. To me, again, it's just, and we've all done it. Every single one of us has has done it. We have been arrogant enough to walk around breathing God's oxygen, eating his provided food, giving, taking the money that he's given to us, like completely taking for granted the family he provided for us, all while giving him zero credit for it. Imagine the arrogance. Like if God snapped away your oxygen right now, your political preferences would not make the oxygen come back. Oh, Lord, have mercy. You know, how mad you get on Facebook will not make the H2O show back up in the rivers. Your opinion has never really changed anything, friends. God is completely in charge, and we are completely dependent on him. Man, imagine, imagine if we were to walk through Walmart. Okay. Or shoot, maybe I should go this way. Imagine if we were to walk through Target. 
This was not on the notes. Maybe I should have thought about this more. No, but in all seriousness, and rather than just get angry all the time, just walk person by person and be like, you're fully dependent on God. You don't even know it. Yeah, you're messed up. You got some issues, but you are fully dependent on the Lord, and he's still got you alive. Therefore, I should treat them how? Mm, the way that God is currently and actively treating them, which is in love. Because he could put a little bubble around, the oxygen could disappear, but that person's still breathing with all their terrible opinions and all their things that are harming the culture and the world. God's still providing for them. So I think about this idea that all of us, whether we know it, like it, believe it, it oh, that's another thing. Whew, friends, I hope someone hears this that does not believe in Jesus Christ. It don't matter if you believe in Jesus, you are fully dependent on that man. You are fully dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It doesn't matter if you think it or not. It doesn't matter if you have amazing opinions about religion and this, that, and the other. It frankly doesn't matter. Why? Again, just listen. Okay. I'm getting off on one of those tangents that I've been trying to get better at. Love y'all. Thank you for being with me. So listen to this. The destruction that we, we find in our lives, uh, it, which we all will, I need you to hear this, friends. It's actually an invitation to realize your dependence on God. Do you know how many people's story is that they hit rock bottom and then found God? Why do you think that is? It's because so many of us are so distracted by everything around us. It's not until everything's stripped away we notice he's been there the whole time. One of my favorite quotes is sometimes it takes hitting rock bottom to realize God has always been the rock. The question isn't if we're dependent on God. The question is, do we realize we are? And God allows destruction to make us aware of our dependence. Gosh, throughout scripture, we have this idea of God loves a broken and contrite spirit. That's in Psalm 34, that's in Psalm 51, it's a few other places as well. God loves a broken and contrite spirit. What is he saying there? Is he saying, I just want to ruin your life and make you miserable so you see me? No. What a naive way to view that. He's saying, you're so distracted that I'm okay with you hitting rock bottom to see that I've been there the whole time and I'm the only thing holding you up. Everything else you've tried to stand on has let you down time and time and time and time and time and time again. So maybe I just got to let you fall so you'll let me pick you back up you know the people who don't realize they need Jesus are the ones that don't think they're in need of a savior if you don't know you're sick you won't go to a doctor but the minute you notice you're sick we're going to urgent care immediately with that sniffle it's no different in spirituality it's not until we start to see the symptoms of our sickness that we realize that something is wrong if we distract ourselves friends day in and day out with a bunch of garbage over and over and over again all we're doing is throwing tylenol on cancer now i want to acknowledge that this is a point of contention for many even believers and the contention is a pretty simple uh, idea and it's this well, why would I follow a God who allows crap to happen to me? Like this whole idea of, well, if God's good, how could bad things happen, right? Like here's one of the, mo the popular ones. Anytime there's a natural disaster, you just have millions of people like, well, if God's good, how would that happen? My first comment to that is like 99% of the problem in our lives is self-inflicted. There's definitely things that aren't. 
100%. There are things in this world because of sin nature and because of the fall uh, and just because of the way the world's progressed that we have no control over and are hard and are real. And yet, goodness, when we look at relationships and we look at monetary situations and we look at children and we look at this, that, and the other, usually it's self-inflicted, Right? So we could already throw most of the arguments out about this idea of, well, why does bad stuff happen if God's uh, good? Because that's not love. Well, I, I want to challenge us. On the contrary, God allowing things to happen, God allowing destruction in our lives actually is love. Let me give you an example. A parent who gives a kid everything they want and never lets them experience anything or learn anything and shelters them from anything hard, is, is, are they loving them? I would argue they're setting them up for failure. Of course, love your kids and protect your kids. That's not what I'm saying. Please do that. But that, that, full, that full extent, <clears throat> I would argue, isn't really love. So what do good parents do? And of course, we all parent differently, so I'm not making comparisons here. But generically speaking, Good parents will teach and let their kids grow and experience and make mistakes and fall at the playground and skin their knee and go outside even though there's a million hazards. I mean, listen, if we were to operate by this idea, well, if God's love, how could he let anything bad happen? That's the same mentality of saying as a parent, I'm never letting my kid go outside because there's so many bad things out there. That's not a good parent. No, listen, man, uh, my little daughter, we were at the York Revolution game yesterday. Shout out my friends and family that came to that. It was super fun. My little daughter, she, she's two, she's two and a half, Brindley, Bwinwi, B-R-Y-N, that's what she says. She's climbing on the railings, and I was tempted to be like, get off that railing, girl. And then in my head, I was like, if you fall, you'll know. <laughs> That'd be the best way to teach you. By the grace of God, she didn't fall. But I let her play on the railing. I let her climb on her leg as a monkey bar, which it's not. She ended up getting yelled at by the staff. And then she was like, the boss yelled at me. And I was like, that's your fault, girl. That's your fault. And mad it's my fault because I should have told her to get off. But do you kind of see like where I'm jokingly getting at with this? God allows things so that we can see how much we need him to see that he's been there the entire time. And how about, let me further this conversation about what a good parent does. How, every time a, a child falls, what's a good parent do? Pick them up. Your father in heaven does the same thing for you. Your father in heaven does the same thing for you. He wants to let you live. He wants to let you experience things. He wants you to learn and see your dependence on him. And he wants you to be with him in every moment. And yet he knows that we're fickle human beings who won't be. But what he will be every single time for us is the one who picks us up. When we fall, Judah had fallen here. And God was there to pick them up as we'll see as we study the rest of this book. But I think there's a twofold problem with Actually, I already got to that, so there you go, ad-libbing, love it. So we see Judah at the beginning of this book, in this chapter, becoming more aware of their dependence on God because the other things they depended on were suddenly gone. Let me encourage you, friends, when something feels like it evaporates, when something feels like it was there and it's not, gosh, a lot of times that's people. A lot of times that's people. They were there one minute and they're not the next. Maybe we should actually shift our mentals and our spirits to realize, okay, this might be a void I'm supposed to fill with something else. And his name's Jesus. Oh, man, I said this last Wednesday, two Wednesdays ago, and I wrote it down. I actually had someone else wrote it down for me, so I wouldn't forget. The reason that we repeat things is because we don't replace them. 
The reason we keep going back to stuff is because we never replace it. So we, we see things like this and we have destruction in our lives and we go back and we go back and we go back and we go back and it's because we're not replacing it with something better. We're not replacing it with something right. And God's going to continue to allow us to walk in these ways in order to teach us. So the second thing that we can be asking this morning, when we think about the destruction we've seen in our own lives, which each one of us has, and if you don't feel like you've seen a ton of destruction, you will. You will, year by year, some of my seasoned folk in the room are like, mm-hmm, I'm on season like 14 of destruction right now. It's like a movie at this point. Whatever destruction may look like for you, do you know that God wants to use it to make you more aware of him? He wants to use it to make you more aware of him. My young people, I encourage you, lean into the seasons of suffering that will come in your life because they're going to push you to be more dependent on him. So the second thing we can ask ourselves this morning is is by actually shifting our spirits today to thank God for the destruction rather than ask the weak question, why me? When people say that, why me? I say, why not you? Why is this happening to me? Why, Why isn't it happening to you? You deserve better than the next person? Let's ask ourselves this question because every single time a child falls, a good father's there to pick them up, Amen. So as a closing point, I want to shift from the destruction that happened. And again, that's all we've really read so far. And we're going to get into a call to lamentation next week, which I I believe Mark will be teaching. And uh, it's the next step almost of what Judah's process was here in destruction. So I'd encourage you, if you feel like you've walked in seasons of destruction even recently, and you can relate to Judah, that you feel like you've lost things, God gives us so clear instructions coming further in this book. But we see the destruction which had happened. I mean, it it was real. It was hard. We're not negating any of that. Um, And to some extent, we're all going to experience this type of destruction in our lives at at different extents and variations. But uh, we can take note that what was real to them, because this was real. This was active. This isn't like hypothetical. What was real to them, their reality, if you will, was shortly to be used For God to give revelation to them. And that's the last thing we're going to talk about. God uses our reality to bring revelation. God uses our reality to give us revelation. Now, what do I mean by this? This was Judah's reality, period. So whatever you, whatever your last week has looked like, whatever your last month or season or year has looked like, that's your reality. It's real. It's been happening. There's no getting around it good or bad. Some of us are having, quote unquote, great realities right now. Some of us have had hard realities recently. Some of us have had a little bit of both. There had been this terrible locust storm and it took everything. It was real. And God gives this word to Joel. This is a prophetic word, three chapters of a prophetic word to Joel, listen, to meet them where they are, to use their reality to reveal something. Now the root of the word revelation is what? To reveal. Simple. I think we tend to over-spiritualize the word revelation, right? We're like, well, it's the book, and it's got all this crazy stuff in it, and I have no idea what it's saying at all. You know what I mean? But it's cool. And then we got, you know, we got the people in whatever different places that are just like, the Lord gave me revelation for the body, and blah, 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 things like that. And I'm like, I get it. I understand. Thank you. Bring it appropriately. But, like, all, all, all of us have experienced revelation in the last week. The question isn't if we've experienced it, it's if we've noticed it. 
God is constantly revealing things. It's throughout scripture. He's always telling us something new. We say this all the time here. It's just about if we're listening, right? It's not about if he's speaking. It's about if we're listening. Holy Spirit, if we know the Lord, is in us, meaning he's always doing something. He's actively with us. So revelation is this this big word that just means God's revealing something to you. God's telling you something new. And it's cool because I think what we'll do is God could reveal something to you that's minimal, right? He could show you, well, you need to be more patient with this person. But we disregard that for revelation of like, well, Joel's a book of revelation. You know what I mean? No, 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 no. If God revealed something to you that's quote unquote tiny this morning, that is a revelation from the God of the universe. How dare we diminish it? We got to pay attention to stuff like that. So I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Some of you might notice I look trim and fresh this morning, okay? Anybody? Amen? I only heard women say amen, so just kidding. No, but in all seriousness, about two weeks ago, I just was feeling like lethargic and lazy and apathetic, and I'm typically a go-getter, and I'm typically energetic, and I was not finding that energy. I'm like wanting to go to bed really early every night and stuff like that, and I wasn't even like in deep prayer or anything like that. I was just with God. And I was like, well, like why? What's going on? Like, I just, I'm not into it. I'm not into anything right now. And God was like, dude, because you've been treating yourself like crap. He's like, you've been eating poorly. You haven't been exercising like you used to. You're like, you know, you're, you're not sleeping well because you're, you know, staring at your phone too much and like whatever, just a litany of things. And I haven't necessarily changed them all yet, but in the last two weeks, I've tried to get back to eating horrible green salads, you know? And Ben, I've only gone once, but he's roping me into these F3 morning workouts. And like, you know, and it's waking me up at 5.30 in the morning to go sweat. It's horrible. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I was thinking, I was like, all right, God, well, what have you revealed to me? We have to internalize everything, people. Like your relationship with God is between you and him. Your relationship with God is not through me to him. It is you and him. So you need to be thinking, like, what has God revealed to me lately? And it was a pretty simple thing. I was prepping this message, and I was like, well, God, I'm not sure that I can say something specific you've revealed to me. And he was like, yes, I have. I've told you you've been treating yourself poorly. And I was like, that's a revelation from the Lord. Do we see the distinction of what we've kind of maybe overemphasized as revelation while we've diminished that God reveals day in and day out? So let me ask you that question. What's revealed to you recently? What revelation has he given to you? And maybe should we be people who actually start putting the term on it that it's correct? Well, no, God didn't just download something to me, even though I do love that word. He gave me fresh revelation. That feels weighty, doesn't it? Well, when God talks to you, it's weighty. No matter how big or small we might think that it is. So I've gotten that revelation, uh, this recent one. You know, I'm like 6.4 pounds down, somebody. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And God here gives this word to Joel amidst their reality. Their reality was hard to show them something new. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to be diving into what God was revealing to them and also what it could mean for us. But among a few things he's revealing, the first thing, it's a revelation. He revealed to them, what? That their joy was in stuff. That's a revelation to Judah from the Lord. So maybe that's even your revelation this morning. God's revealing to you that your joy is in stuff. And if it was burned away, you would be flattened. That's a revelation from the Lord. That's beautiful. That's not condemning. Conviction from the Lord is sweet. Do you know that when the, God convicts you and God wants to change something in you, God wants to stir something in you, that's him actively loving you? 
Sometimes we, we ah, do this thing, I think, where God brings us a hard word, he challenges us, or he wants us to get rid of something, or a brother and sister in Christ calls you out on your sin or your garbage, and rather than view it as God loving us, we walk away because we're being judged. It's not what judgment is, family. Sweet conviction from the Lord. And he's doing that, I think, with Judah here. He's, he's highlighting their loss and saying, your joy has withered away. Maybe I'm revealing to you that your joy was in the wrong things. All of this and more, he, he brought a ton of other revelation, I think, even in this, like shortly in this book, just to summarize quickly so I don't step on any toes for the future. He, he later in this chapter reveals revelation. He reveals the need for a sacred assembly and a fast. Like sometimes the, the Lord will reveal to you, hey, it's time to fast because you've been holding on to stuff too much. Like you've been distracted by stuff. That's revelation. He goes on. He reveals that the day of the Lord is coming. He reveals that the locust swarm is similar to the coming of the Lord. It talks about how enemy nations will be brought low by armies like locusts. He reveals that we need to return to the Lord as the time is coming near. He reveals that bringing new grain and wine, that he's bringing these things to satisfy fully. We get a little more positive there. He, he reveals that he will repent pay the years that the locusts took. He reveals that there are multitudes in the valley of decision. He's talking about the world and the culture and even us, that there's multitudes of us in the valley of decision. And hey, I'm revealing to you, I'm giving you revelation. It's time to make a choice. There might be people even in this room that throughout this series, this is an invitation to make a choice. You've been in the valley of decision Oh, I think that phrase is going to resonate with some people. You've been in the valley of decision. It feels like a valley, but you haven't made a choice yet. And yet, the scripture pops to mind that we're in, when we're in the valley, we look to where? The hills where our help comes from. It's your choice. That's a decision. So he reveals all of this and more, brought in revelation through, through their current reality. Friends, I just feel the need to hammer it home. He does not want to bring you out of your current reality. He wants us to teach you through it. He wants to teach you through it. He wants to reveal things to you through it. Listen, had he just, had he just said, oh, you know what, Judah, I love you and you're God's people. I'm just going to have the locusts miss y'all and hit the next town. Judah wouldn't have learned anything. Judah wouldn't have learned that their joy was rooted in, in the wrong things. They wouldn't have learned that they needed to return to the Lord. They wouldn't have learned they had to fast. They wouldn't have, nothing would have been revealed to them. Why? Because God's not interested in the storm passing over you. He's interested in walking with you through it. That's our God. I don't know about you. The more I've matured in my faith, the less interested I am in serving an easy God. I've said this before. I'll probably say it a bunch of other times. The path paved to hell is just riddled with easy decisions. So whatever your reality is this morning, right now, this week, he wants to reveal to you through it, pull him closer, pull you closer to himself, which is the ultimate treasure of life. That is our God, that is our Jesus, hope when it's hopeless, grace at its lowest, help when it's hardest, chases us when we're the furthest. And aren't you glad you follow him today, Grace family? Aren't you glad you follow him today, Grace family, that we can read something like this and pull nothing but invitation and hope out of it? That's our God. That's who we serve. Family, this study of, of this book, we're only getting started. It's going to be seven weeks, so we got six more weeks to exegete this and dive into this. Hopefully this was rich for you this morning. But as we continue to go, I just want you to leave with this. The book of Joel is an invitation. 
The book of Joel is an invitation. It seems scaly on the exterior. It seems hard. It seems like one of those books that's like, oh, this is like a little bit weird to read. I promise you, uh, once you get past that rough exterior, it is an invitation waiting for you to say, I'm ready to come back. Maybe for the first time ever. Maybe for the 300th time ever. Maybe it's a time to come back from a sin that you've been walking in regularly. Maybe it's time to come back from apathy. Maybe it's time to commit something to God that you've been holding on to so tight because you're terrified to let it go. It could be a lot of things for you, but we are in the valley of decision the same way that Judah was here. And the question is, are we going to accept the invitation to the one and only true God, the only truth, the only thing that he has for us, the only things he wants for us? And are we going to step into that invitation together? I pray that we do. I pray for each of us as we study through this, that we see God's heart coming through hard situations and that that heart wasn't just for them 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years ago. It's for you right now. That even when the locusts come, whatever that looks like for you, he is as present, if not more, in the storm because God loves a broken and contrite spirit. And the beautiful thing is that while we're all broken, we serve the only one who's not. Amen? Let's pray. Let's worship the only person worth worshiping. Father, I thank you that we're all going to have locust storms in life, and yet you are not distant from them. In fact, you are our high priest that we can relate to in everything. You walked through the worst things so that you could relate to us, God. So whatever we've got going on, Father, you know it. You are present. You are with us. You are for us. And God, I ask that we would be people so rooted in who you are and what you say about us that when those storms do come, when those locusts do eat things up, when, when the things that we value and the things that we hold on to and tend to find joy in are taken away, God, our ultimate joy is in you. I pray this family, Grace Fellowship, would be a family believer so solid in that, that people would look at us even in hard times and say, what do you have and how do I get it? We love you, we trust you, and we worship you because you are good pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stand up.